Welcome to episode 26 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today we are talking about another episode of our characterization series, and we are going to be talking about villains today. (laughs) I love villains. I I always like characters that are a little bit evil, or a lot Mm -hmm. evil, depending. (laughs) (laughs) You do like people that are a lot evil, it's true. Yes, I do, sir. This is is kind of something in my wheelhouse. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to talk about villains, we're going to talk about what makes a successful villain, what makes a villain different from a hero or a protagonist. Um, So yeah, we've got a lot of good things to discuss today. All right, so let's then talk about, well, let's, I guess let's, let's just distinguish what is the difference between a hero and a villain. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, a successful villain is going to have a lot of similar things that a successful hero is going to have. So we talked last week about how a protagonist should have strengths and weaknesses, should be well-rounded, should have clear wants or goals, and all of those things should apply to your villains as well. Your villain needs to have strengths and weaknesses. They need to have clear goals, something that they want, that they are pursuing. And that's usually the point of conflict in a story is that the hero and the villain want opposite things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always define villains as somebody who is in opposition to the hero. I mean, of course, that's also a role filled by the antagonist, but we can get to the antagonist a little bit later in this episode. But for me, I always thought that the dividing line between a villain and a hero was actually morality. Mm -hmm. Because, and that's sort of tricky to define because of course you know in in the age of George R. R. Martin we've got the grim dark you know and who's really good and who's not and all that sort of stuff but when we're talking about sort of traditional heroes and villains the story or the narrative clearly has a moral divide there's those who are on the side of good and then those are who are on the side of evil or not good if you want to put it that way so I tend to think of heroes and villains just being on opposite sides of the moral divide. Um, And that's basically how I I define it. We can also go into a little bit later about whether or not you even need a villain for a story. Um, But, you know, the stories that do call for this sort of relationship between the hero or some sort of obstacle between the hero and the goal or whatever, to me that's sort of the big difference between the two. So, um, what about you, Kelly? Do you, what, what's your big primary definition aside from like opposites? Yeah. I mean, I think you covered most of it. They're in opposition to the hero. There is definitely a morality line there. Um, sometimes too, it has to do with the methods that they're willing to use in order to reach their goal. Their goal itself might not necessarily be in and of itself evil, but if they're willing to use evil methods to achieve that goal, 
Um, that's something that we see sometimes in villains. Yeah. I, yeah. And again, that comes down to the morality thing because for heroes, again, that moral divide is a line that they will not cross. But a villain has no problem crossing that line, you know? Mm-hmm. If we think about, well, this is actually not a very good example, but I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> we think about Anakin Skywalker from the prequel trilogy. There's a clear moral line in, in the, that the universe is sort of set up, right? You know, you protect the innocent, you're Jedi, you, um, you know, you sort of play by the rules and all sorts of stuff. And Anakin doesn't do any of those things, but I think... What really crosses him from the hero line to the villain side is when he just kills all the kids in the temple, all the younglings in the temple. Right. And he also inadvertently kills his wife. Um, This is not very well done or elegantly done at all. But, you know, that's obviously there's a moral line that the audience and the universe holds. And the moment Anakin crosses that moral line is the moment he becomes a villain. So, so then we talked about our definitions. So then what do you think makes a good villain since we talked about a bad one? <laughs> um, what is it that makes a good villain? Well, I think there are kind of a range of different types of villains and that, you know, each different kind of archetype has different things that make it successful. I... I really think that a villain needs to be, in order to be successful for me, needs to be someone that I I genuinely fear or loathe. But usually fear is a big part of it. It's not just about hatred. It's really about um, a fear of that person's vision of the world, what they want the world to be or what they believe the world is, and the things that they do in pursuit of that or to perpetuate that, um, most villains that are successful for me are really frightening or despicable or, or disgust me. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something that will like turn that inner gut feeling toward just utter disgust, Mm -hmm. um, or disdain for what someone's doing. I think that sometimes there is, a tendency to go really big and grandiose with villains, but if there's not enough there, if it's just like empty, evil stuff, it's not really frightening and it can cross over into almost being comical. Yeah. In a way that I don't think you want villains to be, you know, but it's like if it gets so big and so grandiose and it's just very cardboard or paper thin and there's nothing, you know, supporting that in the character, in the actions or in the world, then it crosses over into this kind of comical thing, you know. Um, Again, if we go to Star Wars, The Force Awakens, I love the the character of Kylo Ren, (laughs) but I think... I think he's adorable. And, and sad. I think he's just really sad. sad. And and kind of hysterical, I have to tell you. There's a... I mean, I guess... Spoilers? I don't know. I don't know who's yeah, seen who this movie Yeah, who hasn't seen not, this movie but, by now, really? But just in case you're... You know, you haven't seen it yet, then, you know, plug your ears for a minute. Um, but there's a scene, you know, where Kylo Ren obviously has a temper and he's like kind of like this emo teenager character even though he's probably a little bit older um but there's a scene where he's sitting there in his you know armor and he's 
talking. He's like monologuing to something off screen and we don't see what it is. And he's got this very serious monologue going on. And then the camera pans away from him and you, the audience gets to see who or what he's speaking to. And it's like the crumpled, decaying mask that used to belong to Darth Vader <laughs> that, that he has made. Like a, It's like a little shrine. <laughs> And it was hilarious, and I'm pretty sure I laughed out loud. And I love that moment. Now, I don't know necessarily that the creators intended that moment to be comical. I don't know what their intention was. I think most likely they probably wanted it to be this, like, deep, dark, you know, moment. But it just reads as really hilarious in that yeah moment. <laughs> Okay, it's interesting when we talk about Star Wars, because the original trilogy and The Force Awakens have sort of a similar structure when it comes to, quote, evil. There is, in in the original trilogy, you have Darth Vader, and then later on you see the Emperor. And then in The Force Awakens, you've got Kylo Ren, and then you see he's a student of Snoke? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't love. Not a great villain name. No, oh. it's kind of terrible. Um, but He himself is also kind of terrible. This is true. We don't know anything about him. Yes. Well, we may know more in future books. Um, but I think those two types of villains, I think, really sort of, to me, demonstrates the two types of villains overall, in that there is an ideological villain which would be the Emperor and Snoke and Voldemort. Um, and then there's also the sort of the personal villain, which is really what Darth Vader and Kylo Ren are. Kylo Ren and Darth Vader both have a personal motive against our, our heroes. Darth Vader is looking for his son, uh, which is Luke. Spoilers. I mean, again, <laughs> I don't know who doesn't know this, but in case... Um, and in the case of Kylo Ren, he discovers Rey, who is also a Force user. And so that really personal connection between the villain and the hero is what drives that relationship. Mm-hmm. But kind of in the background, then you have sort of big E evil. <laughs> um, and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. Ideological villains, I think, are are hard. They can walk the line between being basically like a giant flaming eye a la Sar- Sauron mm-hmm. in Lord of the Rings. You know, Sauron is a villain, is not really a great villain. He's, again, he's just evil with a capital E. Right, it's just like the darkness. Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> like, a darkness has come to the land. Like. Yes. Um, but then you have other ideological vi- villains like Voldemort, obviously. Voldemort mm. is evil, and... There's nothing really redeeming about him whatsoever. But he's also somebody who whose ideal whose ideology is familiar. You know, he basically is somebody who has weaponized hatred against a marginalized group of people. And that is evil, like broadly evil. Um but then you contrast him to other villains in the series because, you know, Voldemort's the big bad. He's the big boss, if you want to use the, the video game analogy. But then each book kind of has a minor villain. You know, you've got Quirrell in the first one. You mm-hmm. sort of have Gilderoy Lockhart. I wouldn't call him evil as so much as just incompetent. Um, right. The brilliant twist in 
uh, Prisoner of Azkaban is that you think the villain is Sirius Black, but it's not. Mm. Right, it's Peter Pettigrew, mm-hmm. which who is an interesting villain, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to talk... I think this series is a great series to talk about when talking about villains because, as you mentioned, we get so many, um, both on the broad scale and the minor scale, and I'd like to talk about them further. I think... I want to start with Voldemort because I think, like you said, Voldemort is the big ideological villain. And Voldemort worked really well for me up until the final book. Yeah. And once we got to the final book, he wasn't as successful for me anymore. I think part of the reasons why he worked so well for me previously is that we never actually saw him. Everything we saw of him was a memory, or we had someone else telling a story about him, or we saw, just through daily life in the wizarding community, the aftershock of the terror that he'd wrought upon these people and how it's affected their lives going forward, even though he's been gone for decades. Um, you know, And so we didn't have any direct scenes with him in it, and then we started to, he was resurrected, um, and I think that that scene was really chilling to me in the fourth book, when Voldemort's resurrected, I I remember reading that when the book first came out, and reading that scene and losing my mind, because this horrific villain, this evil, evil entity that we'd heard so much about was coming back, and then... In the fifth book, he kind of takes a little bit of a backseat, but then there's that epic battle, that duel with Dumbledore mm-hmm. um, at the end of the fifth book that was really impressive. And then in the sixth book, he's not really around so much anymore. And then in the seventh book, he just... <sighs> something diminishes him in that book for me. I think we kind of see him sitting around holding counsel with his death eaters, with his lackeys who for the most part are kind of idiots. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> aside from the Malfoys and from Snape who's, you know, his own separate thing, most of the death eaters are kind of stupid, which you know, was not really awe-inspiring. And then you know, the final showdown is just essentially, like, Voldemort getting on a magical megaphone and being like, Harry Potter, come find me, or else. <laughs> like, it just, I don't know, a lot of what was frightening about him left the series for me in that final book. I think part of it is because... So, Voldemort was so scary, I think, because what seemed to be a far-reaching vision. You know, he had this idea he had this idea of what the wizarding world order should be like, right? You know, that it, it was very chilling. Pure bloods only, you know, discriminatory against anything that wasn't what he thought was, you know, pure or right. But then as the series progresses, you start to see that kind of all-encompassing dark vision of what he wants the world to be narrow more and more and it starts to be very personal about Harry and starts to be really short-sighted 
I think because what made him so chilling is that he seemed to have plans within plans, right? If this didn't happen, then at least I can do this. And he's also shown to be a very powerful wizard and all that sort of stuff. But by the seventh book, he's so focused on just basically revenge against Harry that he's lost sight of what made him scary, which to Mm -hmm. me was that worldview of what he Mm -hmm. wanted the world to be. And he's somebody who's very powerful and could do it. But when it just becomes all about Harry, I think that's when it got, when he kind of just deflated as a villain for me. Mm -hmm. Just kind of, just didn't, didn't work so well. Yeah, I kind of agree. But if Voldemort was an example of someone who, you know, at at certain points in the series is an incredibly successful, very strong villain, um, you know, but we both kind of agree that he peters out toward the end, there's lots of other villains in the series. Do you have a favorite? In Harry Potter? Mm -hmm. Umbridge. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think there's a single person who would disagree with me that she's, like, the most terrifying villain in that series. Mm -hmm. I love Umbridge. And when I say I love Umbridge, I don't mean that, you know, I love her. I mean, I love to loathe her. Yes. She is horrific. And so how is Umbridge different than Voldemort? So we talked about Voldemort as being an ideological villain. And, but what I think is so chilling about Dolores Umbridge is that she represents the banality of evil, the everydayness of evil and that is what's so scary because Voldemort being big and powerful and has all these ideas about purity and whatever but Dolores Umbridge it's it's everything's on such a small scale but it's so intimately small and that's what's so chilling about it and she's she's a bigot but she's also a bigot that hides and masquerades behind this very cheerful English auntie kind of a thing you know she's got she's like all the kids and the hairballs and the teacups and the pink and the um she's so petty is the other thing but she's and she's clearly like emotional and everything's kind of personal for her but it's different from Voldemort I feel because when it becomes personal for, for Voldemort he's it's just everything starts to get narrowed and I feel like he gets really short sighted and doesn't know what his next step is going to be but the entire scope of Umbridge's world is small. You know, it's whoever's wronged her. And so all of the little retributions that she makes are so just, like, accurate and intimate and horrible. She's horrible. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. awful. <laughs> and in her own way, she herself is powerful because she has the power to implement these regulations and these bigoted laws or rules um, to force people to kind of bend to her will or to, you know, follow her worldview. Uh, it's really, you know, it's like systemic. It's it's the government mm-hmm. <laughs> passing, you know, <laughs> bigoted laws, essentially. Um, but she's got absolute power, too. It's not even, Lita, yeah. she's basically got free reign from the ministry to run Hogwarts exactly as she, she wants to see it. Um, and it's just so chilling, I think, and particularly the way she treats Harry in the book and not just Harry, obviously like a whole bunch of other characters, but the scene where she, he's in detention and she's got Mm -hmm. that cursed quill that, you know, 
just cuts his hand over and over with, I must not tell lies. It's so just creepy and chilling and awful. And he has to write it over and over again until it's literally scarred into his skin. Mm -hmm. It's so chilling. And and it just Mm -hmm. seems like it's exactly everything about her. Evil wrapped up in this, like... It is. Civilized package. (laughs) Yeah, and the whole thing is, I must not tell lies. But, of course, Harry isn't lying. Umbridge has no desire to hear the actual truth. She wants to bend the world to meet her truth. Mm -hmm. She doesn't care, you know, if Harry is telling the truth, because that's not the world as she sees it. And so she's just completely dismissive of it. You know, the particular thing that she is punishing him for lying, when we know he isn't lying, is particularly horrible. Because she frames it as this you know pursuit of the truth or this or valuing honesty and that is not at all what her real aims are she's definitely and also too the majority of that book is her it's not even that she works directly for Voldemort it's not like Quirrell who Mm -hmm. is directly working for Voldemort she's not she is working for the ministry and that, I think, is also terrifying because it does not mean that evil is an ideological evil. Evil can be the person next to you. And, and it's so chilling. It's so great. Um, and I think what's so scary about Umbridge is we all know her. You know? Like, we know Umbridge because we've probably encountered Umbridge in our own lives. We know somebody like her, and that's that's so. Ugh, it just hits home, and <laughs> I know, I know. Just, she's terrible. She's awful. She's but awful in a great way. Just so realistic, um, because like I said, most of us, I would venture to say, don't have a Voldemort in our lives. Um, I guess unless you count Donald Trump, but we won't get there. <laughs> we won't. We won't get into politics. But you know, we don't have a huge ideological villain that we're fated to fight. You know, we don't have that. But I mean, I'll tell you this: my I went to an all girls prep school for high school, and for the first three years, our headmistress was somebody who was a lot like Professor McGonagall. She even wore tartan suits. Um, and she, you know, she was, I think she was a professor at, at Wellesley before she came to our girls' school, so she was very much that kind of starchy headmistress, and very, but she was very, you know, liberal and everything like that. But my senior year, we had a new headmistress who, I went to a Catholic-affiliated high school, but a huge percentage of the student population was not Catholic, myself included. And then the, we had a new headmistress who instituted a lot of different changes that did not sit well with a number of teachers, a number of students, and it went in a direction that a lot of us were not comfortable with. Um, and like, I was like, to me, she was my umbridge because she hid everything behind this very, you know, sweet, very, you know, I'm looking out for your best interest. But you knew it wasn't our best interest she was looking out for. It was hers. So I think that's what's so great about Umbridge. We know her. We know her. She's in our lives. Yeah. (laughs) 
So, well, then we talked about ideological villains and sort of more personal villains. And in terms of what makes one successful for us, and you, you mentioned the element of fear. Mm-hmm. What makes you afraid of a villain or a character in general? Hmm. What makes me afraid of a villain or a character in general? I think at a certain point for me, the fear of something and not fear for someone. Because I said in the protagonist episode that I want to fear for those characters. I care about their welfare and I'm afraid when their lives are threatened or they're in danger. When I'm talking about fear with a villain, it's the opposite. I'm afraid of what they'll do or what they're capable of or why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that ultimately what happens is that fear comes in when I can no longer understand. Because I think we have something that's really popular right now, and maybe always has been, but um, particularly I'm seeing a lot of it right now, is our sympathetic villains. Mm -hmm. Our villains where they're doing terrible things, you know, but we can kind of understand. We've had this glimpse into their past or their personality, and although we believe they are misguided, we understand what drove them to make the choices that they're making. And I think that for me, as a reader, the fear comes in when I no longer have that ability to empathize anymore, where it doesn't, I just can't understand. Because, you know, Voldemort had lots of tragic things happen to him. You know, as a child, he was an orphan, and his family history was a mess, and, you know, there's lots of sad things there. But from the very beginning, um, Voldemort exercised power over others and was controlling and manipulative and cold and calculating, you know, right away. Um, And he very quickly began to outstrip whatever sympathy may have been available to him based on, you know, the sad circumstances of his childhood. And so he's not something that I, he's not someone I can empathize with. I can't look at him and say, oh, I understand why you're, you know, making those choices, even though I don't agree it's gone beyond that now it's it's past understanding and i think for me as a reader that's what ha- that's what's going on when i begin to fear a villain yeah you know it's funny cuz i don't necessarily think i fear villains um per se but when you talk about empathy i think that's actually very important because What is often a distinguishing characteristic or a distinguishing divide between a villain and a hero is empathy from the character. A villain does not necessarily have empathy for anyone Mm -hmm. except for him or herself. Um, That villain is lashing out from just the whole worldview the villain has is very centered on the villain itself the villain themselves, the, you know, Voldemort as a child had a horrible childhood and, but he had this ideological idea and he, and everything kind of spins out from that and he doesn't have any empathy. He just wants, he never wants to feel, feel powerless. So he's going to exercise his power over other people. Um, in Lee Bardugo's Grisha books, you have the Darkling, which is sort of a similar kind of character who, just wants to rule 
Ravka because he was once powerless and never wants to feel that way ever again. And there's no empathy there. There's, you know, these characters don't care who they hurt, who they kill, what collateral damages they cause, whereas a hero probably would. Like, a hero will have to make tough decisions, I think. A hero should have made tough tough decisions. But I think a hero should weigh the cost of other people and how their decisions affect other people, whereas I don't think a villain would. The sort of the ends justify the means kind of a, a philosophy. Like, I don't care what happens to anyone else around me as long as I get what I want. Mm-hmm. And I think that, it, it doesn't necessarily mean I, I fear, I'm afraid of a villain, but it, it's when I'm no longer, I don't understand mm-hmm. the, the moral divide that they're standing on. And I think right. that's what distinguishes it for me. Um, but then there are other types of villains. So that's, we're kind of talking more broadly, kind of more typically in sort of, high fantasy or epic fantasy where there's gen- like good and evil, right? You know, there's those kind of big forces clashing against each other. But what about other types of villains and maybe smaller scale stories that aren't necessarily fantasy? I mean, you can certainly have a villain in contemporary stories. You can certainly have a villain mm-hmm. in, in many, many other types of genres. So... If it's if it's not necessarily a good versus evil thing, what do you think makes a villain? I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's the same as kind of the epic good versus evil, but just scaled down, you know, to more real world, um, you know, a more, a more real world scope. You know, I think a lot of times too in if we take contemporary as a genre, a lot of times contemporary fiction doesn't have a villain at all. There might be some antagonists, but a lot of the conflict in contemporary fiction is internal um, or circumstantial. And so there's no force or person that the protagonist is fighting against or in opposition to. It's just a lot of internal turmoil or conflict or a situation that arises that causes that turmoil or conflict. So I think we tend to see more antagonists in that kind of fiction. Um, And antagonists are different from villains in that antagonists are in opposition to the protagonist, to the main character. They usually, you know, they might have opposite wants or want the same thing or, you know, in some way they're pitted against one another. Um, but antagonists are not necessarily evil. Yes, I would they're agree. Not, they're not necessarily on that evil side of the moral divide. Um, you know, we, JJ and I, are watching Avatar The Last Airbender <laughs> right now. And that... TV series has an overarching evil, you know, it has Lord Ozai of the Fire Nation, who's like the Voldemort or the, you know, the big ideological villain. Uh, But there is many other characters in that show, and there's an antagonist. Um, Prince Zuko is technically, you know, he's a member of the Fire Nation who are doing all these bad things, and he 
you know, wants to please his father and, you know, capture the Avatar and, and do all of these things that objectively we might say, hey, those aren't the greatest things, but Zuko himself is a good person. Mm-hmm. He has his own moral code that he follows and that he won't cross. So he himself is not an evil character. He is doing things that are maybe in the service of evil, but he himself has a morality, has, you know, an understanding of what is and isn't acceptable for himself. Uh, And so he's an antagonist as opposed to a villain. Yeah. Sort of similarly in my favorite TV, one of my favorite TV shows growing up is a cartoon called Gargoyles. Um, And if you guys haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. But basically, there is kind of an overarching villain of the first first season. His name is David Xanatos. Um, and he's, he's, he's got... He's a very intelligent, very rich man. So he's got... And he's actually the person for whom the TV trip is named after, the Xanatos Gambit. Where, and he's the kind of character that always has plans within plans within plans within plans within plans within plans. He wants to amass wealth, knowledge, and power, not necessarily for evil, but he's somebody who just is interested in it and wants it and wants to know more. And so he's kind of amoral to start with. And and anytime his plans are foiled by the gargoyles, it's not like, oh, I will get you next time. You know, it's very much about, all right, I've been outmaneuvered in this chess game. I acknowledge that. Um... So you wouldn't necessarily call him evil. And that's another hallmark that I like about one of my other favorite villains is Melisande Charizai in the Kushal's Dart series. She is definitely the, quote, villain. She's the one who wants to take over the throne that does not rightfully belong to her. Her reasoning being that, you know, there's an accident of birth between me and the queen, and I am just as capable, if not more, of ruling this country. And she's not evil. She's not somebody who's going to enslave her population or anything like that. She's just somebody who has a lot of resources and is very, very intelligent and thinks that she can rule. Um, but again, when her plots are foiled by our heroine, Phaedra, it, she kind of takes it gracefully in that sort of like, all right, I've been outmaneuvered. You win this round. And I always like villains like that too, and they're not necessarily... I mean, you, you would call them the villain in the series because they're on the opposite side of good, but they themselves, as human beings, are not evil. Um, I'm trying to think of if there are any other examples off the top of my head where it's not necessarily a good or evil type of thing. Um, well, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head, but Let's move on to whether or not you think a story needs a villain. No, I don't think so. Um, You know, kind of like I was saying before, in a lot of contemporary fiction, there is no villain. You know, there's just circumstance or internal conflict or situations. So I don't think a story needs a villain. I think certain genres of stories need a villain. You know, I I can't necessarily think of a, a fantasy that doesn't have a villain. Mine. Or your your well, oh yeah. 
No, yours does not. Yours is a fantasy, um, but it is cir- it's a circumstance. They're racing against you know essentially a clock. Um, there's a there's a something is going to happen after a certain amount of time, and so they need to make decisions before that time comes. So yeah, I guess you're right. There is no villain there. I think the only genre I can think of that needs a villain, or at least a bad guy, a general bad guy, are mysteries and thrillers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't really think of a mystery or thriller without one. I can. Which one? Little Face by Sophie Hanna does not... That's a huge spoiler, but doesn't technically have a villain. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, 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 like, does, like, it has people that are not great. Right. But the central mystery, you know, that's posited, where it's like, who did this, what happened... And then, you know, whatever. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. I don't know. I mean, I suppose you can... There are situations like that. I remember reading Jodi Picoult's Plain Truth. And that Mm -hmm. is technically a mystery. Um, It has a body, and they're trying to figure out what happened to the body. But it doesn't really have a villain or a bad guy, per se. Or, I guess, Gone Girl. I mean... I guess in that case, yeah. there's no hero, because both of them are terrible. Both of them are terrible. In a fascinating way. Right. In a, like, I could not look away from that book. Usually, you know, you see a lot of people sometimes complain where everyone's so unlikable and they can't, you know, get into it. But I think everyone in Gone Girl is unlikable. And I couldn't put that book down because it was so riveting to read about these horrific people and what they were doing to each other. Yes. And I think what's so great about Gone Girl, again, there's no one that you would definitely say is unequivocally good. Um, And Gone Girl is so much about perception, our perception, but other people's perception of those characters. So that's what makes that book so riveting to me, and especially the big twist we get from part one to part two. Um, What we thought about Amy is not what she presents to the world. And it's sort of a double twist because Nick knows who she really is and knows what she's really like. But everything that we're getting about Amy contradicts what Nick knows to be true until we see the real truth about Amy in the second half of the book. So it's masterfully done, masterfully crafted. Um, but yeah, I would, I would definitely say that that's actually a book about two two villains because they're just mm-hmm. horrible, horrible people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think stories that don't need villains. I think probably any story doesn't doesn't need a villain, mm-hmm. but it needs right. conflict. Oh, absolutely. But and that is different from a villain. Mm-hmm. You know, usually your villain can be a source of conflict. But the villain is not the conflict in and of itself. Yeah, I think the best examples that I can sort of think about, about stories that have conflict with no villains. So I watched a lot of Korean dramas uh, growing up. You know, my mother's Korean, my grandmother's Korean. um, So I watched a couple. And my mother, or not my mother, my grandmother loves these what my mother calls Kongjipachi stories, which is basically Kongjipachi is the Korean Cinderella, 
basically that's where it comes from. But ultimately it boils down to there's a good girl, Kongji, good and virtuous, and a bad girl, Tachi. So a lot of these melodramas, and they are, like they're melodramas to the extreme. My grandmother loves these. Um, there's a good virtuous girl, and you know, as long as she's good and pure of heart, everything will come to her. And then there's the bad girl who just wants everything for herself and won't will do nothing, stop at nothing to get the main guy and all that sort of, you know, terrible stuff. But there's another, a really, really, really popular, well-known drama in the 90s, early 2000s called Autumn Fairy Tale, Kaldonga. And it's about, and it has no villain whatsoever. It's about a brother and sister or they think that they're brother and sister because she was switched accidentally with another girl in the hospital when they were born. But ultimately, they were for the first 12, 14 years of their lives, they were raised as siblings until an accident happens and they go to the hospital and realize that this girl that they thought is a member of a family is not. So the two girls that were switched at birth switch back. So they live with their birth families. And then the story fast-forwards, I think it's about 10 years later, and they meet up again. And the the two siblings who are raised together but aren't blood-related start to fall in love. But it's still a lot, you know, because they essentially still have the same parents, and, you know, even though they're not related, they basically are Um, And there's a lot of conflict in that way that, you know, they shouldn't be together, but they want to be together. Um, So that's that's conflict that has nothing to do with whether or not there's somebody getting in the way of their love. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely stories that don't need villains. But we love a good villain. At least I do. (laughs) (laughs) We do. We do. I love a good villain. I also love um, a redeemed villain. Yes. Or like a, an, a story arc where a villain is redeemed. Um, I really love those. One of my favorites is Faith from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I love her. I love her too. I love her so much. Um, Faith is a character that's introduced in the third season of Buffy. And she starts out just kind of as a foil to Buffy. Here's another Slayer who does things differently. Um, and, you know, she's kind of a character study against, you know, here's what Buffy does and here's what Faith does. But she's a good person. You know, she's on the side of good. And then slowly over the course of the season, we see a lot of things happen and a lot of ways that she is pushed to the side or is embarrassed or humiliated or hurt. Uh, And all of those small little things coupled with her tragic past and her own, you know, kind of wild streak and impetuous nature culminate in her betraying the group. And she betrays them and she sides with evil. And she goes really, really dark. And her story continues um, on subsequent seasons of Buffy, and then she moves over to Angel, which is kind of um, the spinoff of Buffy. And she goes way, way, way dark. And she murders people, and she tortures people, and, um, you know, does a whole bunch of really, really horrific things. And then the show redeems her. Mm -hmm. And... 
they do it really well because, you know, they really do. I mean, Faith does some awful things and she doesn't care. You know, she, she doesn't feel bad for doing this stuff. She truly crosses over some kind of a moral line. Um, and the show manages to pull her back. And then, you know, throughout the remainder of Angel and Buffy, they show her redemption, which is slow and she has to work for it and it's difficult. Um, and then, you know, finally by the culmination of the seventh season of Buffy, uh, Faith has rejoined the people that she betrayed and is fighting alongside them for good once again. Um, it's just really well done. It's a great story. I love the character of Faith anyway. Even, you know, even when I loved her when she was introduced and she was good. I loved her when she went bad. I loved her when they brought her back. I mean, I just loved the entire thing. And it was just a really well done redemption arc, I think. Yeah. Redemption can be tricky because... There's something about faith that I loved. I mean, clearly, I like you. There's something about faith that I sympathized with or empathized with. There's something that was just making me root for her even when she was horrible. Mm-hmm. And I find this kind of interesting because if we take another Whedon show, Dollhouse, we have the character of Paul Ballard. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ugh. He is the textbook definition of a white knight, and it's he's gross. But, mm-hmm. I mean, of course you could say this is probably a feature of the show, that there is no, quote, good or evil, but it does posit that Paul is doing a good thing in that he's looking for... The basic premise is that a whole bunch of people have basically sold themselves into indentured servitude, really, by having their original personalities wiped and then kind of uploaded with whatever new personalities, whatever client needs them to be. Um, And so there's one particular doll, they're called dolls, named Echo, also played by Eliza Dushku, (laughs) Um, named Echo, and he's on the trail for her, uh, on her original personality, which was a woman named Caroline, and Caroline is also awful. Yeah, she sucks and Paul sucks. And the show wants you to root for them. You know, the show wants you to want Paul to find Echo and restore Caroline. And, like, that's supposed to be, like, the happy ending is what the show wants you to want. And I just never wanted that. I didn't. And I hated... It was Paul in particular because I liked most of the dolls. But Paul, there was just something so smug and self-righteous about his quest that just yeah. rubbed me the wrong way. And it's a little bit like Battlestar Galactica. So, of course, as I mentioned before, I love Gaius Baltar. Um, and I would say, even though Gaius is not really a villain, I would say he's sort of a villain the way Gilderoy Lockhart is a villain, you know, that mm-hmm. he's self-serving and not particularly smart. He's smarter than Gilderoy Lockhart, but, you know, he's very, very self-serving and doesn't really think beyond number one, which is himself. But I would say that his character growth over the course of the series is to think of other people beyond himself, and that's that's the point he reaches at the end. And then there's a character, Apollo, who I 
loathe for much the same reasons that I loathe Paul Ballard. And not necessarily because Apollo is a white knight, but just Apollo makes really dumb decisions that he thinks are for the the greater good or for other people, like the that he thinks are best for other people, but it's not. It's really just good for him. It's just awful. I hate, I hate Apollo. Um, so, you know, there's, there's kind of that. So I don't know if Apollo ever gets redeemed for me. No, I don't think he ever gets. No, no. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, does he? No, no, he doesn't. Not ever. Um, but, but the show isn't painting him as a villain, though. Yeah. He's just really unlikable. But we're never supposed to think of him as the villain of the story. No, we're supposed to think of him as one of the heroes, but... Oh. And it just doesn't work, because nobody... You can't connect with him. Yeah, it's... Or Lost. We'll go back to Lost and my other favorite character, Ben. Ben Linus. Who definitely starts the show as a villain. Um, yeah. I don't have the same love for Ben that you do, and I, just love I don't, I don't know, I actually, I think I do, I do not feel that the show redeemed him for me. At all? No, and I think they wanted to, well, it's been a long time since I've seen the full run of Lost. I've watched, I've done a rewatch of the first three seasons, and then I quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> Are you kidding? It's before, like, it's like two and a half, maybe, before it gets well, awful. I think the finale of season three is excellent. Yeah, but then you have to get through the um, most of season three to get there. I know, I know, I know, I know. But you know, when I use when I when I do my rewatch of Lost, that's usually when I tap out and say, "Okay, I can't, I can't do this anymore." Um, so I have not, and I, I don't think I've ever watched the final season again after seeing it when it aired. So there is most likely a lot about Ben's storyline that I am not remembering at all. Just that it's I don't even remember that it happened. Um, I think it's also because he comes into his own in season four. Yeah. I mean, I thought I liked him as a villain a lot. I loved to hate him. I thought he was really fascinating. I think for me, you know, I guess what the show would posit as his turning point, I guess, spoilers for Lost, you guys, um, is that, you know, Widmore's people, I think it's Widmore's people, have, you know, come and attacked the island or whatever, and essentially, um, they have Ben's d- adopted daughter, Alex, The one person hostage. he actually loves with no the one person selfish motives whatsoever. He actually loves, and of course he stole her. Right. <laughs> he kidnapped her. But, you know, whatever, he loves her. And so they they have her hostage, and they say that they're going to shoot her, and they're threatening her life. And Ben calls their bluff, and they kill her. And, you know, and it's his fault, because he chose to preserve his own, you know, whatever, Um, And whether or not he really believed that they would do that and was, you know, trying to call their bluff or whether or not he knew they would do it and made that choice, the show kind of leaves it a little bit ambiguous. But from that point on, you don't think so, JJ? I think they (laughs) make it very clear that they didn't, he did not think that they were going to go through with it. I mean, it's very clear that he regrets it, um, absolutely, and is gutted by it, you know, but. 
I just, I don't know. I, I don't think that, I don't think that everything that he does from that point on, and the show goes to great lengths to, to try to redeem him, I think. And they kind of go like three steps forward, two steps back, you know, where he like, you know, he, he doesn't from that point on turn around and become a good guy. Um, he remains complicated through the run of the series, but I don't know that I can get over that and forgive him. I don't think he's a character that, for me, I never really forgave him for his terrible deeds. It's not why I consider him redeemed, maybe. Mm. Um, because I don't, I think he's done things that are absolutely unforgivable. It's the same way I feel about Faith, because she's done things that I think are absolutely unforgivable, right. but I still cared about her character growth. And it is many much the same with Ben for me. And, well, I think partially because in season four, and I may be in the minority in this, but I actually really liked season four. Um, season four did the sort of flash-forward present-day thing, but without actually having to resort to subtitles on the screen that tell you what point in time you are. It was clear what point in time you were. Um, but at that point... In the sort of the island storyline, you see that Ben, instead of just being against our heroes, comes to realize that he and the heroes have a common enemy. And to me, that's when he starts to shift from just thinking about himself. I mean, he will always think about himself first. That's just Ben as a character. It's the same with Guy's Baltard. Right. Um, right. But that's when he starts to act in ways that are not just evil. You know, he's kind of come to realize that there is something beyond just what he wants, which is the island. You know, he thinks he's entitled to the island, but he's he starts to see beyond that. And I don't actually think the show means to redeem him completely. And in fact, the character himself, in the very last season, pretty much says, I don't think I deserve it. Right. Well, I, I mean, I agree that they don't redeem him entirely, but, you know, kind of his his final act is to become a guardian of the island alongside Hurley. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is is the show's way of saying this is his penance, and this is his, you know, and you assume that he does that, and then he'll be redeemed. Such a (laughs) heavy-handed Christian metaphor for all that the the writers were like, it's not purgatory! The island is purgatory. (laughs) Um... And, of course, at the very end, all of the characters walk off into the bright light in the church, which you assume is heaven. I mean, really heavy-handed, you guys. And Ben... I hate I hated it, too. Finale. I, I, I we hate should, it. We should do a podcast episode about endings in terms of, like, series finales of TV and of books, because I have a major problem <laughs> with endings. You can name a famous franchise, and I hate the ending of it. Basically. Probably. Yeah, I hated the ending of Lost. I mean, I thought it hit the right emotional beats for me, or at least for the characters that I liked. Mm -hmm. Even if I thought the plot was dumb, because the plot is dumb. I mean, the plot is the dumbest thing you can think of. It's super dumb, but for me, it even missed emotionally. It didn't didn't ring my bell. I, I tend to think of Lost and the ending of Battlestar Galactica as being very similar. In that the end of Battlestar Galactica, let's talk about dumb endings to his show that was great. The dumbest. 
the dumbest thing ever. But, on the other hand, to me it hit all of the emotional notes that I wanted from these characters I came to care about. So, in that regard, I just didn't care. Like, I... And the same thing with Lost. It hit emotional notes for me that I... I totally acknowledge that it's dumb. It's dumb. <laughs> but... Ultimately, character-wise... It's what we got. <laughs> character-wise, it, it hit all the notes that I thought were right. Um... It didn't redeem... The, the one character it did not redeem for me and could never redeem for me is Jack. Because I hate him. I hated him from the first time he opens his stupid eye. I hate him. I hate him so much, which made it really awful. Um, but yeah, I, I, the actual plot happenings don't, don't matter in, for me if I see a culmination of a character arc. And in, in the case of Ben... The first step for me is when he starts to realize that there is something beyond him, that there is a greater goal that he needs to work for that's not just me, myself, number one. And then you and I may disagree about the the death of his daughter, but the reason I think it's his turning point is because he has a line he won't cross, which is children. He has a line that he won't cross. In that regard. So, I think for... Like, to a point, like, he'll kidnap them. But kidnapping is not <laughs> the same them. as killing You're, them true. in cold blood. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Um, so, for me, that's kind of, like, that was the line he wouldn't cross. So, he, I thought that he thought that that was a line that they wouldn't cross. Right. So, that's, that's why, for me, it worked for Ben. Um... But yeah, I mean, redeemable villains, I think there has to be something sympathetic in them to begin with. And for me, what makes me sympathetic to a villain is if I can see the potential for their their character to grow, period. Just grow beyond themselves. And so that's why I think Ben is successful, that's why I think Xanatos is successful, and that's why I think uh, Gaius Baltar is successful. So... All right. Do we have any further thoughts on villains? I think that just about covers it for me. Yeah, I guess the the other thing I want to touch on a little bit are the sort of, quote, grim dark series Mm. where there is no good guy and no bad guy. Of course, George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire is kind of the the one everyone can think of right now. Although I would argue that the show has a real hero and that would be Tyrion. Tyrion's like unequivocally like the one person even though he's done horrible things he's like on the moral side of good. Um, but the other one I wanted to mention was Watchmen by Alan Moore. Which I find that comic book and the movie adaptation very interesting because the person that you think is the villain is possibly the one with the noblest motives. So it kind of flips every... So the the characters that you think you're supposed to be sympathetic with or maybe on the same moral side as are just awful people, and then the person that those people are against... So I, 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 I highly recommend Watchmen to you guys, just to read. I really don't recommend the movie, except for maybe the first five minutes and the last 15 minutes, because everything else in the middle of Watchmen is completely unwatchable. Um, 
but I do recommend Watchmen as a real interesting study on villains because in in one way they are all villains and in another way they are all good people or not good people but on the moral side of good so but yes I think I think that's pretty much all I've got all right what if anything are you reading lately so we mentioned that I was in a reading rut which I still am to some extent, but I met up with a couple of friends this past weekend and we're just sort of talking about different books and things and particularly we were talking about German, the German language, which as you guys probably know, I I love for many, many reasons. Um, But I mentioned this author had written a Walter Mowers. He is a German author and he's had his works translated into English He's probably the best known for the 13 and a half lives of Captain Blue Bear. Um, but the one that I'm thinking, that I was thinking of when I was having this conversation is The City of Dreaming Books. And basically, if you're a fan of Norton, Ju- Norton Juster, Juster, is it Juster? Norton? I think it's Juster. Norton Juster, the author of The Phantom Tollbooth. If you like The Phantom Tollbooth and you like whimsy and wordplay and puns. I love puns. I love really smart puns. Um, I think The City of Dreaming Books is is for you. And so I hadn't read it in years. I think I read it probably like eight years ago or so now, and I, and I just remember enjoying it and finding it funny and whimsical. So I picked that one up again, and maybe that's what I need to cleanse my reading palette and get me out of my rut. So what about you? I got sick of waiting for it from the library, so I bought Morning Sun by Pierce Brown <laughs> to uh, to read because I was number like seventy five or something. Yeah, that would take you forever to get there. Library list, and I yeah, I didn't want to wait anymore, so I'm reading that right now. I actually just uh, started, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm hoping. I just mentioned that I hate the end of series, so I'm hoping this one will prove me wrong. Oh, oh. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, I, I, I liked the end of the series, barring one small thing, but it wasn't a big thing in that it, like, destroyed my opinion of the ending. It was just a small character detail that I was kind of like, meh, doesn't really like it. Um, but otherwise, I thought, pretty good ending. I thought it was pretty good ending. Um, again, emotionally satisfying, so I was kind of like, that's, that's all I really needed out of this. And, and, and my favorite character survived, so that's, that was important. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about, what are, what are you working on? Well, I just finished what I'm hoping are the last copy edit rounds between myself and my editor. As I'd mentioned previously, that Winter Song has been bumped from fall of 2016 to winter of 2017 because it's moving from adult to teen. And the move from adult to teen does require some YA-ifying of some some content in, in my book. Um, so it's kind of been a little bit of a back and forth between my editor and myself. We're working on it together to, you know, make sure it's appropriate for the teen market. Um, we decided to do this during the copy edit stage. Because it didn't require a huge edit of any kind. It just was a couple of scenes in particular that we just wanted to go over with a fine-tooth comb. Um, 
And so I, I turned those in before the weekend, and I'm hoping she's supposed to get back to me on Monday. I'm hoping it's the end and we can send it off to production, and we'd be getting early galleys of Winter's Lung. So keeping my fingers crossed, but uh, that's more or less what I'm working on. What about you? Um, I am working on podcasts <laughs> pretty much <laughs> only. So I do this podcast and then, uh, we are, you and I are working on an Avatar The Last Airbender podcast with our friend Mike. And that is hopefully going to be launching uh, a little bit closer toward the summer. And then I am also now doing a podcast called The World's Okayest Moms with two women that I'm friends with, Haley and Lauren. Uh, we're on iTunes, and by the time this airs, we should be on Stitcher as well. And a couple of other places. We're on Twitter at uh, OKest Moms and on Instagram as well at OKest Moms. It is just a podcast about the highs and lows of parenting and all the okayest moments in between. Uh, we try to talk about parenting with a lot of humor uh, and a good dose of reality because, unfortunately, so much of the cultural messaging about parenthood is like cherish every moment earth mother blah 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 or like it's very or if you don't do it right then you'll screw up your kid for life (laughs) exactly exactly and so we're just hoping to inject a little bit of levity uh into that uh cultural discussion um some humor and some solidarity because you know all parents are doing a great job no matter what you're doing for the most part um so yeah that's what i've been working on we had some technical difficulties in our first uh couple episodes but i think the sound quality should be improving so if you can stick with us through those um i think we're going to be getting better at that as we go and um yeah that's it i did have a writing date with my friend mallory yesterday i did not get much writing done (laughs) but i had my laptop open in front of me so that doesn't really count, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about off-menu recommendations? Do you have any? I do, actually. So, um, my husband and I just started watching the second season of Halt and Catch Fire, which uh, just finally arrived at Netflix, or it's possible it could have arrived on Netflix a while ago, but we didn't notice until now. Um, Halt and Catch Fire is... A TV show set in the 80s about computers, like computer coding and programming and stuff. Um, I think it's from AMC. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it is an AMC show. Uh, it stars Lee Pace. Oh, I as, love him. Mm-hmm, he's excellent in it. Um and it's, so it's set in the 80s, and it's super 80s. I mean, it's, <laughs> like, super, super-duper 80s. And Lee, play, Lee Pace plays a character um, whose name is Joe, I think. I can't... I just think of him as Lee Pace in my head. I know. <laughs> um, but I think, he, I think his character's name is Joe. And basically, the character he plays is crazy, and super, like, one of these plans within plans within plans within plans people, very manipulative, very intelligent, um, you know, constantly mask upon mask upon mask. You're never sure who he really is. Every time that you think he's being vulnerable and repe- revealing something of himself, 
to you or to another character, it turns out he's just playing them again. You know, it's like we ne we'll never know who this guy really is. But you see little things that you start to maybe piece together what, you know, his inner core is like. So he's fascinating. Um, and basically, it, it's they're short seasons. It's ten episodes per mm -hmm. season. And the basic plot is that he comes in to the company Cardiff and wants, you know, them to build a revolutionary personal computer. And they're pitted against, you know, the, like Apple and all this other stuff is like going on and it's super 80s and the soundtrack is crazy. And um, it's really the first season starts off really strong and it has a little bit of trouble in the middle figuring out what it's going to be. Um, there is, there's, you know, it, it, it just gets a little bit muddled in the beginning, in the middle of the season rather. Uh, but then it picks up again at the end and the second season, which we just started watching seems to start out really strong. I'm willing to stick with it for now because I really love the characters. It's kind of an ensemble cast centered around Lee Pace for sure. Um, but it is just so great. The women in the show are really great. Um, there's two women. There's Donna and Cameron. Cameron is a young student who is a brilliant coder um, who gets brought on, you know, but she's incredibly rebellious and kind of immature and just really... Um, id-driven and kind of crazy, but she's phenomenal. And then Donna is um, the wife of another character who's a man who's a, you know, computer programmer guy who's kind of leading this project alongside Lee Pace. Donna is his wife, and she is also a coder, but she's doing, you know, like more, you know, quiet, like, I don't even know if she's doing coding. I know nothing about computers, so I'm probably like just throwing these terms out there because <laughs> they sound computery, but I don't know what they actually are. She does something with computers, but that is, you know, not. She works for another company, and she's just never going to get any credit for anything. She's just one of a million people doing this job that is not seen as important. But she's brilliant, and. Um, She's also the housewife and the mother, and her husband is never around. And, you know, it's this very typical portrayal of kind of, like, 80s women, the women in the 80s and throughout time just kind of being stuck and limited by their options and what's available to them. And they call out that kind of anti-feminism and that sexism so beautifully in the show. And Donna, the actress who plays her, I think is Kelly Bishy, and she's wonderful and the things that they do with that character and how they get her out of that situation and empower her is just so great. I just, I love that character so much. Um, so we're really into that right now, and we just started watching the second season. Awesome. Yeah. So... What about you? Well, nothing much new, but um, this past weekend, Mark and I, we really liked the TV show Archer, the cartoon and this, I think the sixth season was finally added to Netflix. So we started watching Archer again. And it's really kind of, because both Mark and I, just during the day, you know, we have so many things going on. He's a surgeon, so he's at the hospital, like, 
you know, 12 hours a day, if not more, and he comes home and he's tired and he doesn't really want to do anything, he, except maybe play a game or, you know, whatever. And so that's often why we don't watch a lot of TV shows together, particularly those with, like, long, continuing storylines, because it's just too much emotional effort for both him and me to get invested in a, char- in, in a show and characters and all that sort of stuff. It's just too tiring. Um, and which is why Archer's great, because they're half-hour, you know, they're half-hour episodes. There's kind of an overarching story. You know, the characters have, um, particularly Archer and the female spy, Lana, they kind of have this, like, push-pull, you know, so they have this continuing storyline, but, you know, each episode ends after 30 minutes, and, you know, we can choose to go on to the next one and the next one, but, you know, there's no pressing need the way a lot of shows are built these days. I mean, we are kind of living in an age of really fantastic television, but unfortunately some of that fantasticness just calls for a lot of emotional commitment that I just don't have don't have to give right now I'm just like I just can't get into a TV show um my mother has been harping on me to watch this Korean drama that she's obsessed with called um well it's called the English title is called Descendants of the Sun and so I'm just gonna because my copy edits are in and I'm hoping that I don't have to work on them anymore. I think I just want to, like, go to the gym and read City of Dreaming books there and then come home and start this drama that my mother keeps harping about. So that's, that's pretty much all for me. That works. <laughs> all right. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to continue our series on characterization, and we'll be talking about love interests and ancillary characters. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about the various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. Yeah, the Instagram is new, guys, so definitely check it out. It's not dormant anymore. Yes. (laughs) You can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at PenAndParsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, SJJones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Actually, hit record this time.